a cunningly savory sweet that left her work kitchen smelling like a fine Indian restaurant. A brief, invigorating change from the happily married scents of butter, vanilla, and sugar. The fragrance to greeny of ordinary life. Dead on her feet by ten in the morning, she had forgotten the telephone message she'd played back the evening before. Greeny dear, I believe you'll be getting a call from a VIP tomorrow. I won't say who and I won't say why, but I want it on the record that it was I who told him what a genius you are. Though I've just now realized that he may spirit you away. Idiot me, what was I thinking? So call me. You have to promise you'll call me the minute you hear from the guy. Bye, uh. Pure Walter. Irritating, affectionate, magnanimous, coy. V.I.P., he intoned breathlessly, as if she were about to get a call from the Pope. More likely, some upstate apple grower who'd tasted her pie and was trolling for recipes to include in one of those spring-bound charity cookbooks that made their way quickly to yard sales and thrift shops. Or maybe this. The director of Cheesecake from Junior's had tasted hers a thousandfold superior to theirs, and wanted to give her a better-paid but deadly monotonous job in some big seedy kitchen down in Brooklyn. What, in Walter's cozy world, constituted a VIP? Walter was the owner and gadabout host, not the chef, he couldn't have washed a head of lettuce to save his life, of a retro-American tavern that served high-cholesterol, high-on-the-food-chain meals with patriarchal hubris. Aptly, if immodestly named, Walter's place felt like a living room turned pub. On the ground floor of a brownstone down the street from Greeny's apartment, it featured two fireplaces, blue-checked tablecloths, a fashionably weary velvet sofa, and, bored of health be damned, a roving bulldog named the Bruce. As in Robert the Bruce? Greeny had wondered, but never asked. More likely, the dog was named after some fetching young porn star, object of Walter's cheerfully futile longing. He'd never been too explicit about such longings, but he made allusions. Greeny wasn't wild about the Eisenhower-era foods with which Walter indulged his customers. Indulgence, she felt, was the province of dessert. But she had been pleased when she won the account. Over the past few years, she had come to think of Walter as an ally rather than a client. Except for the coconut cake, filled with Meyer lemon curd and glazed with brown sugar, most of the desserts she made for Walter were not her best or most original, but they were exemplars of their kind. Portly, solid citizen desserts, puddings of rice, bread, and noodles, sweets that the pilgrims and other humble immigrants who had scraped together their prototypes would have bartered in a Mayflower minute for Greenie's blood-orange mousse, pear ice cream, or tiny white chocolate eclairs. Walter had also commissioned a deep-dish apple pie, a strawberry marble cheesecake, and a layer cake he asked her to create exclusively for him. Everybody expects one of those, you know, death-by-chocolate things on a menu like mine. But what I want is massacre-by-chocolate, execution-by-chocolate, firing-squad-by-chocolate, he told her.
So that very night, after tucking George in bed, Greenie had returned to the kitchen where she made her living, in a basement two blocks from her home, and stayed up till morning to birth a four-layer cake so dense and muscular that even Walter, who could have benched a Shetland pony, dared not lift it with his single hand. It was the sort of dessert that appalled Greenie on principle, but it also embodied a kind of uber-prosperity, a transgressive joy, flaunting the potential heft of butter, that protean substance as wondrous and essential to a pastry chef as fire had been to early man. Walter christened the cake Apocalypse Now. Greenie held her tongue. By itself, this creation doubled the amount of cocoa she ordered from her supplier every month. After it was on his menu for a week, Walter bet her a lobster dinner that before the year was out, Gourmet would request the recipe, putting both of them on a wider culinary map. If that came to pass, Greenie would surrender to the vagaries of fleeting fame, but right now the business ran as smoothly as she could have hoped. She had a diligent assistant and an intern who shopped, cleaned, made deliveries, and showed up on time. The amount of work they all shared felt just right to Greenie. She could not have taken an order for one more tiny eclair without enlarging the enterprise to a degree where she feared she would begin to lose control. Alan said that what she really feared was honestly growing up, taking her lifelong ambition and molding it into a business with a capital B. Greeny resented his condescension. If business with a capital B was the goal of growing up, what was he doing as a private psychotherapist working out of a backdoor bedroom that should have belonged to George, who slept in an alcove off their living room meant for a dining room table? Which brought up the subject of George. Was Alan unhappy that Greenie's work on its present scale allowed her to spend more time with their son than a business with a capital B would have done? Delegation, said Alan. It's called delegation. This was the sort of bickering that passed too often now between them, and if Greenie blamed Alan for starting these quarrels, she blamed herself for plunging into the fray. Stubbornly, she refused to back down for the sake of greater domestic harmony or to address the underlying dilemma. The overlying dilemma, that much was clear. Through the past year, as Greenie began to turn away clients, Alan was losing them. His schedule had dwindled to half-time, and the extra hours it gave him with George did not seem to console him. Alan, two years away from forty, had reached what Greenie privately conceived of as the Peggy Lee stage in life. Is that all there is? Greenie did not know what to do about this. She would have attacked the problem head-on if the sufferer had been one of her girlfriends. But Alan was a man— chronically resentful of direction. When he was with friends, his argumentative nature was his strength, a way of challenging the world and its complacencies. But in private, alone with Greenie, he fell prey to defensiveness and nocturnal nihilism. She had known this before they married, but she had assumed this aspect of his psyche would burn off under the solar exposure of day-to-day -day affection like cognac set aflame in a skillet. Next year they would be married ten years, and it had not.
In their first years together, she had loved the wakefulness they shared late at night. After sex, Alan did not tumble into a callow sleep the way most men claim they could not resist doing. Like Greenie, he would be alert for another half hour or more. They would talk about their days, their dreams, both sleeping and waking, their notions on the fate of mankind. When it came to worldly matters, the voice of doubt would be Alan's, mourning or raging that genocide would never end, that presidents would never be moral, that children would always be abducted by men who would never be caught. But he was invariably passionate. And back then, Greeny saw hope in that passion. He loved Greeny expressively, eloquently, in a way she felt she had never been loved. When they had been sleeping together, or not sleeping together, nearly every night for a month, she asked, Why do you suppose we're like this? Why can't we just go to sleep like the rest of the exhausted people around us? They were lying in Alan's bed in the never-quite-dark of a city night. He said, Me? I think too much. Not a good thing. Why? Why is that not good? It wears down your soul. It's like grinding your spiritual teeth, he said. Dreaming is the healthy alternative. Even nightmares once in a while. Sometimes a nightmare is like a strong wind sweeping through a house. Greenie had noticed early on that first thing every morning, often before getting out of bed, Alan wrote his dreams in a leather book the size of a wallet. What about me? she said. Do I think too much? Not you. He pulled her closer against his side. With you, I can only imagine that some part of your waking soul just can't bear to see another magnificent day in the life of Greenie Duquette come to an end.